Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you so much, Sue, for hitting some of the highlights of our story. I want to share a little bit more about our church, who we are, uh, before I get into my sermon. As I mentioned earlier, I'm filling in for Pastor Stephen this morning. So I'm really excited to teach and to continue our series in the life of David, but I do want to share a little bit more about our church. So we have three core values as a church that we believe strongly in that we're excited about. They're gospel community, and mission. So the gospel is simply this, that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me to pay the penalty for our sin. Uh, we understand that we are we're broken people. It, it's, it doesn't take much to look at the world around us and recognize that there's brokenness and that we have a part to play in that. But Jesus came to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to, uh, that we could be adopted in as sons and daughters into God's family. And that brings me to the second point, which is community. We believe that our faith is not something to be experienced uh, as individuals completely alone and siloed off. We are meant to be with other believers as a family. So we have community groups that meet right now on Wednesday nights. So if you'd like to get connected, if you're looking for community uh, in our area, we would love to connect you to our Wednesday night connect call. Uh, so if, uh, if you want to do that, you can go to our website and you can Click on the Connect tab, fill out one of those Connect cards. We'd love to get get you connected. And the last one is mission. We believe that this good news that Jesus came and died for you and for me so that we could be family is too good not to share. So we believe that we are called to our community specifically to preach the good news of Jesus, to share the good news of the gospel. Now, i got a couple of announcements for today. The first one is on... Uh, March 17th, we're going to have a Q&A on race and the gospel. This is a hot topic, obviously, right now. Uh, the gospel has always had something to say about how we relate to race and specifically how uh, we can, as believers, speak to the racial tensions that we see in our culture right now. So we're going to have a Q&A. The, 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 uh, the number that you can text questions into is going to be at the bottom of the screen here, but that number is 617 286 2006. Um, any questions that you have are submitted anonymously, so don't be afraid to ask hard questions. We want to engage with those questions. Uh, so text those to this number and uh, make sure to register for that event. The next one is a prayer walk that we're going to do on March 20th. We want to be a church that prays, that bathes our community in prayer. We want to pray for our neighbors. And so we're going to gather now that the weather is a little bit nicer, and we're going to walk through our community and pray over our community. So we'd love for you to to join us in that. And then the last is on March 21st. So next Sunday, we'll have our our next in-person worship gathering. We're so excited about that. We've only been able to gather in person a, a handful of times as a church due to the pandemic. So anytime that we get the opportunity to be in the same room with one another, it's, it's so good. And so I'm excited about that. Make sure that you go and pre-register. It'll tell you all about the precautions that we're taking uh, to have an in-person gathering. Make sure you pre-register. You can go to coahforesthills.org slash events and get registered for that. Uh, so now I want to dive into our text this morning. We're going to continue in our series, as I said, on the life of David. So again, I appreciate Sue hitting some of the highlights of our, of our story today. Uh, so when we look at a story, 
in Scripture or a narrative, which is really just a way to say uh, the type of Scripture that we're looking at, Scripture that tells a chronological story, it's really important to understand the context or the background of that story. So I want to look for just a moment at what happens right before our passage. So last week, Pastor Stephen mentioned Saul knew that David would one day be anointed as king over Israel. And so this passage is where that happens. So this is 2 Samuel 5, 4 through 5. So this is right before our story today. 2 Samuel 5 says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So our story this morning picks up with David. He is fresh. Uh, from victory in battle over the Philistines. Um, He is seven years into his reign over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He is transporting the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, to Jerusalem to reunite the northern and the southern kingdoms under Yahweh, bringing Yahweh worship back as the, the religion of Israel and to establish his reign and his dynasty, which was actually promised to him by God. So that's, that's what David is doing. Now, today, I, I want to talk about worship. Seems like the appropriate topic for me to cover, right? I'm, I'm the worship pastor here. So we're going to see some moments in our story that offer some guiding principles as we think about worship in our context. Obviously, this is an Old Testament passage, so we operate a little bit differently now, but there are still some guiding principles that we can pull out of the story that can help inform the way that we ought to worship. Uh, So worship, let's define that before we go any further. Worship is a response, both corporately when we gather, so as a church, and individually in the way that we live our lives to who God is and to what he's done. So this morning, we're going to focus specifically on corporate worship, what we do when we gather as a church, what we're going to do next week in person Uh, So we're going to look at David's response to who God is and to what he had done in David's life, and it's going to inform some of our thoughts on worship. So we're going to see four big ideas about worship. The first is God's presence is with us. The second, God's presence is something to be celebrated. Three, we worship a holy God. And then four, we worship whether we're feeling it or not. So let's dive into our story. I'm going to read the text as I preach this morning. So this is uh, verses 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now to really appreciate What's going on in our story, we need to understand a brief history of the presence of God with his people, how he has dwelt with his people throughout redemptive history, which does include the ark of God in our story. So rewind all the way back to Genesis, the way that the Bible describes uh, Adam and Eve being with God is walking with him in a garden face to face. Uh, There is, there is, is, uh, uh, absolute community, communion with God in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Fast forward to Exodus, we see God as a pillar of fire leading his people out of 
Egypt. Fast forward a little more, we get to Mount Sinai. God's presence is smoke, completely enveloping Mount Sinai as Moses meets with God. And then eventually we get to the tabernacle, which is the mobile temple for the ark, which is God's presence with his people. Now, prior to our story today, the ark had actually been stolen by the Philistines. So think back to what happened in 2 Samuel 5. We know that David has now been victorious over the Philistines. But just before this, they had stolen the ark and they had paraded it around as a trophy of war. But it's interesting, they they had stolen the ark of God from God's special family, his people. And everywhere they went, sickness followed. They, They eventually realized, we've made a big mistake. We've messed with the God of Israel. We've messed with Israel, God's people. And sickness followed everywhere they went. And so eventually, they gave it back. They'd had enough. They said, you, you can have it back. 1 Samuel 7, 1 says, they took, they took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained there throughout the judgeship of Samuel and the reign of King Saul. Fast forward to our story. Uh, Chronicles actually records David's speech right before they set out on this journey. So this is 1 Chronicles 13, 2 through 3. This is David speaking to the assembly of Israel. He says, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord, our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. And then the assembly agrees. They say, yes, this is a good thing to do. First Chronicles 13, 5 and 6, David and all the Israelites with him went to Baal of Judah to bring up the ark there, bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. So this brings me to our first point, And it's the reason that the people of God agreed with David. This is a good idea. We should go get the ark back and we should bring it to Jerusalem. So the first point is God's presence is with us. So in light of the history of God's presence with his people, we just kind of went through that survey, right? There are all these these layers of separation until eventually you get to the temple and there's there's actual uh, walled off presence, walled off um, distance between God and man. Um, So it's absolutely astonishing in light of this that God's presence is actually literally with us as believers. Romans 8, uh, verse 9, this is Paul writing to the church at Rome. says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you have trusted in Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, if you are following him, God's presence very literally dwells in you. And when we gather as a body of believers, as the church, as God's covenant people, God's presence is with us in a unique way. And that is amazing. Consider the story of the gospels. When Jesus dies on the cross, um, the, the scriptures tell us that the veil in the temple is literally rent in two. 
it is torn down the middle. And that, that's, a, that's a representation of the, the separation between God and man completely going away. The veil is a symbol of the separation between God and man and is torn in two. So when Jesus, with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that separation was no more. Because of Jesus, we have access to God. It's no longer for high priests and for perfect people. We don't have to, to pretty ourselves up to come before God. It's for you and it's for me. And it's by the very righteousness of Christ that we get to approach the throne of God, made clean and made new because of what Jesus has done. We, we have access. Our, God's presence is with us. It's a grace and it's a privilege. So that's our first point this morning. Let's, let's keep reading. This is verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So second point here, God's presence is something to be celebrated. God's presence is something to be celebrated. So we see this appropriate reaction to God's presence from David and from the people of God. They're celebrating. They're singing songs. They're playing loud instruments. They're throwing a party. They are so excited that God is with his people again. This is why when we gather for worship, we don't sing all somber songs, right? All slow songs. This is why we sing songs to clap to, why we might get loud sometimes. This is a good and proper response to the realization that the God of the universe, the very God who spoke the earth and the stars and you and me into existence is with us. It's, it's good, it's a proper response to that realization that we celebrate, that we're happy. It's a good thing. Now, if those songs aren't your favorite, that's okay. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in just a a few minutes, but we do see admonitions to worship this way all throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 33, 1 says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O righteous, praise befits the upright. Psalm 47, Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Psalm 149, Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with the tambourine and the lyre. Now, I referenced a video a couple of weeks ago from Jackie Hill Perry, and she was noting the difference uh, between the way that uh, worship pastors in white culture, majority culture churches call their churches to worship, and the way that, uh, that worship pastors in, in uh, the black church tradition call their churches to worship. Uh, they are not afraid to, to utilize these commands of Scripture, these admonitions of Scripture, there's no question that God is worthy of this kind of response. And so they're not afraid to, to tell the people, this morning we're going to gather, we're going to open our mouths, we're going to clap our hands, we're going to sing praises to God. They speak with confidence based on who God is. Again, worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. Now, it's not only that, we, that he is worthy of this kind of worship, as if he's some far-off or stoic deity who doesn't interact or, or care, right? We've all seen that trope in movies of the king and his court, and there's, there's dancers, and there's musicians, and all this craziness going on, and then there's the king on his throne, very you know, stoic. It's not like that at all. 
we see later in verse 11 that God's presence, his very presence, is a blessing to us, and it brings blessings. 2 Samuel 6, 11, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It's a good thing to be in God's presence. He interacts with his people. He, he enlivens our hearts. It's a good thing. So we gather to celebrate God's presence and offer a proper response. Let's, let's continue reading this morning. So this is, uh, this is verse 6 through 9. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So in verses 6 through 9, we see God's holiness on display. At first glance, we might be tempted to recoil at this part of the story, to cry out injustice and to question, well, well wasn't he just trying to keep the ark from falling and from hitting the ground? That, that seems like a good thing, right? So this brings us to our third point this morning, that we worship a holy God. So the problem with this response is that it fails to correctly understand the holiness of God. Pastor Sam Storms defines holiness for us this way. He says, The holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendentally separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. I love that phrase that he uses, his infinite otherness. The degree to which God is holy is so much so on another level that we as his created beings can't even completely understand or comprehend it. I was trying to think of the, the best or the most contextual uh, analogy I could come up with, to, and this is, this is the best I could do, so, so bear with me. But imagine that someone told you, man, you've got to come see this quarterback that I've discovered. He's incredible. He's amazing. You've got to come see him play. And so you say, okay. And so you go, and you go see this guy play. You pull up, and you are shocked to find yourself at a peewee football game. Not only that, it's the quarterback's first game. And you say, now, hang on a second. This is the amazing quarterback. Let me, let me show you an amazing quarterback. And so you pull out your cell phone, you pull up YouTube, and you type a search in for Tom Brady's greatest hits, right? And you, and you show him this. This is a great quarterback. So it's kind of like that, but not even close. So much so on another level that we can't even really comprehend it. Now, if God is perfectly and completely holy, this also means that his wrath is absolutely righteous. We also understand that to break a portion or one 
of God's law is to break all of it. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all or of all of it. So what is the just penalty for breaking God's law? Scripture is, is clear about this as well. It's death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What we are due for our sin is death. Now God had given explicit instructions that the ark was consecrated. It was set apart. It was holy because God's presence rested there, and it was not to be touched. So God's action was in line with his instruction, and the Lord struck us down. Anything less than this would have been, as Pastor Stephen discussed last week, God's mercy, which by definition, he didn't and we don't deserve. We are not owed God's mercy. So, so what does this mean for us? What, is, what does this story have to do with the way that we worship in our context? Let's read the next line. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So David has this really stark reaction to seeing God's wrath on display. We can easily understand and see ourselves in light of God's holiness. This is why we pause each week in our, in our liturgy when we gather to, to confess sin before God together. We see our sinfulness in light of God's absolute holiness. We do what David does in verse 10. David stops the whole party and he says, whoa, wait a minute. We need to step back and consider before moving forward even another step. It makes me think of the prophet Isaiah when he sees the presence of God in Isaiah 6. His first words are literally, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We see the prophet completely undone before a holy God. So this is why we pause and we confess sin each week. It's right to do so before a holy God. This is what makes the fact that we can even approach God at all, and that his presence is literally with us so astounding, right? The gospel is an absolute scandal that a holy God would dwell among broken and sinful people. He does so only because of what Jesus has done for us. Because in Christ, we are made new, clean, and righteous. And we can approach the throne of God as children. Now, let's wrap up this half of the story. Our text today is sort of broken into two halves. There's the, the journey, which we've, we've gotten through so far, and then... We're about to get to the point of the story where the ark actually arrives in Jerusalem. So this is verses 12 through 15. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the household of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound, the sound of the horn. So David recognizes that the blessing of God's presence, and he knows that he has to complete his journey to Jerusalem, and he succeeds 
This is 16 through 23. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, who's also David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed amongst all of them the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed, each to his house. Verse 20, And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. So let's listen to her response here. She's just witnessed the ark coming in and David's response. And said, How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the, Lord, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So, so the, the ark is brought in and David is worshiping. He's offering this proper response that we've discussed to God's presence. And he sort of loses himself in worship, right? He's dancing with all his might as the text says. Now, I want to I clear up a conception, uh, a misconception. You may have heard this text preached before, and you may have heard someone say David danced naked before the Lord. It's not true. Uh, so he was wearing a linen ephod, a tunic. So th- this wasn't his, his regular royal garb. It didn't have a robe and a train and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this, was, uh, this was something that the priests would have been wearing. So David was certainly not naked. Uh, But David's wife is scolding him as if he was naked, speaking to him sarcastically with a bite, saying that what he had done was beneath someone in his position, that it lacked dignity and decorum. This is not something the king would do. She compares his actions to one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovering himself before other women. So this made me uh, think of a story I'll never forget when Heather, who's our children's director, uh, and my wife, and then uh, Amy, Stephen's wife, who's also our director of women's care and discipleship, they came home one night from a, a night out on the town in Boston, right? And, and we could tell that something had happened. They were, they were kind of chuckling to themselves about it. And so we asked, like, what, what happened? What's so funny? And they, they told us how they had accidentally discovered Northeastern's annual underwear run. So... They're out for a night on the town, and all of a sudden, all these college students start running across the street in their underwear, and they just don't know what to do with themselves. Uh, but they, they told us this story, and we all had a good laugh about it. Uh, but, but this is what David's wife is comparing David to, basically a modern-day streaker, someone with no dignity, doing something ridiculous, right? But let's consider why she responds this way to David. Pride is actually at the root of her response. Pride produces contempt in her heart, 
for David. Pride kept David's wife from worshiping God like David did, offering a proper response. But not only did it keep her from worshiping God like David did, it kept her from worshiping him at all. She couldn't even see that God's presence was again with his people. Pride was in the way. So this brings us to our last point for the morning. We worship whether we are feeling it or not. We worship whether we're feeling it or not. Now, before I move on, I want to be really clear about what I don't mean here. I don't mean that feelings and emotions have no part in our worship gatherings. Of course they do. In fact, when I sit down each week to plan out our liturgy, to think through the songs that we're going to sing, or I plan out the scriptures or the prayers that we're going to read, one of the things that weighs most heavy on my heart is, is trying to consider where each of you may have been that week, what your struggles have looked like, what words you need to hear from God's word to meet you where you are. When I think about the prayers that we're going to read, I, I think about how maybe you might be struggling and not even know words to use to express your struggle. And so my desire is to offer words that you can use. The Psalms is a great place for that. It, it encompasses all of human emotion. So I, I try to give words for you to use to express to God where you're struggling. Emotions have absolutely have a place in our worship gatherings. We've also already discussed that shouts of joy and dancing and clapping are all appropriate responses in worship. I don't ever want anyone to feel like they have to leave their experiences and their emotions, whether they're happy or sad, at the door when they worship with us. We bring those things before a God who loves and cares for us. We bring those things into a family space where we worship and we love and we care for one another, right? Now, what I do mean is that, and I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but you, don't, you do not have the option to not worship. Let me, let me say that again so we all understand. You do not have the option to not worship. You were actually created and designed to worship. John Piper puts it this way. He says, worship is what we were created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory. And he created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Now, maybe you struggle to buy into this idea that you were created and designed to worship. But let's listen to the words of Jesus himself. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is it that you treasure? What do you long for? We all have longings and desires. What's your deepest desire, the thing that keeps you up at night, that consumes the majority of your thoughts? Is it a degree? We live in a city with uh, a ton of universities. Going to school, uh, you know, reaching a certain degree level is, is a huge deal in Boston. Maybe it's a degree. Maybe it's a job or a career path you, 
you consider that, you know, you'll never be happy until you're really in the right career path, that, that niche thing for you. Or maybe it's security, you know, having enough money to feel safe and secure. Or maybe it's a house. Maybe you're tired like me of paying a whole lot of money in rent. Uh, maybe you want to own a house. Maybe it's a relationship. Loneliness is a really big deal in our city. Either consciously or unconsciously, we devote ourselves to our deepest longings. And we worship at their feet. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when they become the object of our deepest longings, our worship, they become idols that will never truly satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. We are made by God and for God. And he is the only one who can offer true, deep, meaningful satisfaction. Now, I want to bring it full circle. When we gather for worship, corporate worship, Scripture commands us to participate. And if something is keeping you from participating, from focusing your worship on God who is ultimately worthy, you need to check your heart. Worship is a response to who God is and to what he's done, but it begins with a heart posture, and it makes its way out of our mouths, our hands, and even our feet, but it starts in our hearts. Is pride keeping you from obeying the commands of Scripture to worship God just like it did for David's wife? Is it anger? Maybe you're angry at someone. And that's, that's causing you to not be able to focus on God. Scripture actually tells us, it commands us to seek reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ before we come together for worship. That's a good thing. Maybe, maybe you're angry at God. That's okay. He can handle that. Bring that emotion to him. Allow the Holy Spirit to soften and work on your heart. Believer, the invitation for you this morning is to evaluate your heart, to ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate your heart. Do you find yourself disinterested in corporate worship? Are you tempted to simply be a spectator, to sit back and take it in as entertainment? Are you tempted not to show up at all? Scripture is clear that we are to worship God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. What's keeping you from doing that? Ask the Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you, to convict you of your sin. Maybe this morning you've never considered what it is you worship. Maybe you're running full sprint after that list of longings that I mentioned earlier, hoping that when you finally achieve whatever it is you're working so hard for, whenever you, whenever you achieve that goal, you'll finally be satisfied. There are a lot of people doing that. The invitation for you this morning is to stop running. The good shepherd wants to walk with you. Stop drinking salt water that will never satisfy your soul. The good shepherd wants to lead you by still waters and offer you water that will never leave you thirsty again. Jesus invites you to trust him to follow him.